years ago, my husband went all out and bought us a really nice dishwasher. It was a beautiful dishwasher. It was brushed stainless steel. And instead of having the door that you pull down, it had these nice drawers that you could pull out. So you could do half loads or full loads or any size loads that you wanted. It had this really cool instrument panel on it uh, with all sorts of different cycles and spin modes and energy savers and just was a state-of-the-art gorgeous dishwasher. There was only one little problem with it. It didn't wash dishes. Uh, it just was a piece of junk. It didn't get the dishes clean. I would load it up all excited, put the dishes in there, run the cycle, and pull them out. And it was worse than before because now the food was fused to the dishes. It had been heated up, and then in that hot, dry cycle, I had to scrub the stuck-on food off the dishes. So we thought, you know, we got to return this dishwasher. And we took it back to the place where we bought it, and they said, oh, no. No, 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 no. We can't help you out. You've got to contact the manufacturer. So we decided we'd contact the manufacturer, and after a while, they responded back to us and sent out a technician. Uh, the technician said, yeah, I see what's wrong with it. I got to fix this, that, and the other. Changed parts out, said it's fixed. Great, good, let's go. Well, within a couple weeks, it was evident that the dishwasher still didn't work. It just didn't get the dishes clean. So we called the technician again. Uh, the manufacturer sent that technician out. The technician looked at it and said, you know, maybe... Maybe you should clean the dishes before you put them in. <laughs> what? Uh, now it's become absurd. Now I've got to scrub the dishes before I put them in. So I wanted clean dishes. There we were cleaning the dishes before we put them in. And we put them in and the dishwasher still broke. It broke again. So we called the manufacturer and this time they didn't respond back to us. They didn't answer the calls, they didn't call us back, they didn't respond to the emails, nothing. And my husband was not happy. He had spent a lot of money on that nice dishwasher. So he called and he left them a message and he said that he was gonna make a YouTube video where he chains the dishwasher to the back of his truck and he drives it down the street. And he said, the only good thing about this brand of dishwasher is that you can chain it to the back of your truck and it won't affect the performance at all <laughs> because it doesn't work. Well, that didn't end up happening, praise God, but uh, it was quite tempting, that's for sure, because that dishwasher was useless. It did not work. It looked really nice, but it didn't clean the dishes. And that can be super frustrating when your product doesn't work, but it's catastrophic. It's absolutely devastating when your faith doesn't work. And James, he doesn't want us or any of his readers to walk away from this letter with a faith that doesn't work with a useless faith. 
So in James 2, 20 through 26, he gives us two real life examples. Two real life examples of living faith so that we can look at those, think through what took place there, and be sure, be confident that we have a faith that really works. So let's look at our passage together. If you haven't already turned there, uh, open your Bibles and turn there or pull it up on your phone. We're going to look at James 2, verses 20 through 26, and we'll read them together first. Uh, It begins in verse 20 with, Do you want to be shown? You foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, our text here, James 2, 20 through 26, it builds on the argument that went before it. In fact, James begins this argument regarding what saving faith looks like uh, back in the 14th verse in our last lesson, uh, James 2, 14 through 19. If you want to look back at the 14th verse in James 2, 14, he said, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? but does not have works. Can that faith save him? And the answer is no. That kind of faith cannot save. It does not save. That is not saving faith. And then he went on to give us two hypothetical examples. He said, uh, let's assume that there's someone who's in dire need of clothing and food, and another comes to them and says, be warm and be filled. What good will that do? That would be useless. That would not work. And then he gives a hypothetical example of two men that are in a conversation, and one says, hey, I have faith, and I live consistently with my faith. My faith works. And the other says, I have faith, but my faith doesn't work. I don't need my faith to work because I believe in God. I believe that there's one God. And James argues, great, so do the demons. And not only do the demons believe that there's one God, but they have a radical emotional response to that. They shudder. We might feel like, oh, well, uh, you know, I wept tears or I had some kind of an emotional response. And James says, even an emotional response is not sufficient because the demons have an emotional response, but their faith It doesn't work. It doesn't work because it's not saving faith. And then James brings us up to our verse, James 2.20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He says, are you ready to know the truth? 
are you really ready to know the truth on this? You foolish, you hollow or empty person, you empty opponent, because you're wrong. You're wrong here. Faith apart from works is useless. Now, uh, in verse 20 there, James 2.20, the word works is the Greek word ergon, and the word useless is the Greek word argos. And the Greek word argos is really a negation of the Greek word ergon. So ergon is a common word for works. You put an A before it to negate it. It becomes argos. So what James is really saying here is works that aren't working. He says faith without works doesn't work. And that's literally what he's saying. Faith without works doesn't work. Workless faith is worthless faith. That's what James is teaching. And then he transitions us. He takes us from the hypothetical examples into real life historical examples. And we see that with the first example that he gives us, the example of Abraham. So let's look back at our text, James 2, let's read 21 through 23 and read again what he says about Abraham. Uh, he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. James saying, listen, Abraham, you all know Abraham. His faith was authentic faith. His faith worked. And that faith, that faith that works, it caused him to follow God. It caused him to follow God instead of his emotions and instead of his feelings. So for us, if we want to make sure that our faith works, our first point is we need to follow Christ and not our feelings. Follow Christ and not your feelings. If you want to make sure you have a faith that works, follow Christ and not your feelings. And we see that through the biography, through the account of Abraham. Now, when James mentions Abraham, remember he's writing to a Jewish audience. These were Jews who believed in Christ, who were scattered due to Christian persecution. So they knew exactly who Abraham was. And James here goes to literally their top guy, the founder of the faith, the father of their faith. Uh, they would know that Abraham was called back in Genesis, in Genesis 12, uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 4. We see the initial call of Abraham, where God said to Abraham, follow me, and if you follow me, I will make you a great nation. And in you, all the families of the world will be blessed, not just the Jewish people, but all the families of the world will be blessed through Abraham. But to be the father of a great nation, what are you going to need? You're going to need children. You're going to need heirs. You're going to need uh, descendants. And Abraham was 75 years old at this time in Genesis chapter 12 when God first called him. 
Well, we uh, read about his life as we continue through Genesis, and by the time we get to Genesis 14, uh, we see that Abraham had a great military victory. He had defeated four neighboring kings to rescue his nephew Lot from captivity. And then when we get to Genesis 15, we think that Abraham should be elated because of this great military victory, but he wasn't so elated. And as we see him conversing with God, he's discouraged because he still has no heir. He was probably about 80 at the time. Five years had passed and he had no heir. And God told him in Genesis 15, 5 and Genesis 15, 6, God brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then verse 6 of Genesis 15, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord. He believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And that's what James is referring to. Abraham believed Yahweh. He believed the promise of God. Even though he was old and he had no children, he believed the word of God. And God credited that to him, counted that to him as righteousness. Such an important text. The very first time the word believe is used in the entire Bible. So Abraham, he trusted God. And then 25 years after that initial promise in Genesis chapter 12, 25 years later, we see in Genesis 21.5, it says Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. They would laugh because Sarah laughed when she heard she was going to have a child. She gave birth to Isaac when she was 90 years old. And Isaac brought great joy to this family. Great joy to Sarah. Great joy to Abraham. The name Isaac, it means laughter. They loved this boy. They loved this child. And yet, after his son had begun to grow up, we see in Genesis 22 that God asked Abraham to do something. In Genesis chapter 22, beginning with verse 1, and we'll read a bit through the account, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What? Abraham must have been thinking, what in the world? This is illogical. This is contrary to the character of God. This makes no sense. What is God asking me to do? But the text says in verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now some say, he rose up early because he was so obedient. 
And others say he rose up early because he couldn't sleep. Uh, you know the feeling when you're called to do something that's terrifying or troubling to you or difficult. It's hard to sleep. So Abraham was up early facing this terrifying task saying, let's get this done. God showing him that he wanted his life, his whole life. He wanted everything from him. And you know, the same is true for us as well. Verse 4 of Genesis 22, it says, On the third day, so they've been traveling for three days, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now, can you imagine what Abraham was feeling at this time? Three days journeying with your beloved son, the son of promise, the son that you had waited for, the son that brought you laughter, the son that brought you hope and joy, three days journeying with him, knowing that you were going to have to put him to death. I've shared before, but our family literally goes into trauma mode when we have to put down a pet. Uh, when we put down a hamster, it, it seriously turned our home upside down. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having to kill your child? I, I can't imagine the emotional trauma, the emotions, the feelings that Abraham was experiencing, and yet he chose to be obedient to God. It says in verse 5 of Genesis 22, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Dad, you forgot something. You forgot the lamb, right? Uh, what are you doing? Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Verses 9 and 10, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. And laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Abraham went all the way to the point of full obedience here. He laid his son on the altar. He took the knife. He was about to slaughter his son. In verse 11, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God provided a substitute. And we know that pointed to the great substitute that God provided for us. So how did Abraham do this? How did he follow the Lord, how did he follow God instead of his emotions or his feelings? Well, he believed God. 
He trusted God more than he trusted what he felt, more than he trusted his emotions. And we know that because the writer of Hebrews records this. In Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. There was the promise. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Figuratively speaking, Isaac was dead to Abraham for three days, right? as they traveled onto that altar. And Abraham believed the promises of God. He believed the promises of God, and God said it was through Isaac that his offspring would be greater than the stars of the heavens. Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead if he had to. Uh, his wife, Sarah, had a uh, dead womb, so to speak, and God brought life from that. Abraham knew that God could and would do as he promised. And so, back in Genesis 15, 6, where we saw that Abraham believed the Lord, Abraham believed Yahweh, and he credited it to him or counted it to him as righteousness. Now we know that he believed. The belief is demonstrated in Genesis 22 because his faith worked. And that's what James is teaching us. His faith worked. His faith was put into practice, and his faith was demonstrated by his works. You might think, wow, so interesting. I love those Old Testament stories. So glad that that's not in the New Testament. Well, you know what? It is in the New Testament. If you want to turn there, I'd advise you to, because there's a very powerful teaching that Jesus gave that mirrors the same concepts. It's in Luke 14, 25 through 30. Luke 14, 25 through 30. And we see uh, in the beginning there, in Luke 14, 25, Jesus addresses great crowds. Now, whenever you have great crowds, you see Jesus saying something profound, something to help people to get it. Because Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7 that broad is the gate that leads to destruction, and narrow is the path that leads to eternal life, and few will find it. And so, when there's great crowds, he realizes that some are there for the wrong reason. Some are there without a faith that works. And so, he says to them in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What? Hate your parents? Hate your husband? Hate your kids and your brothers and sisters? Hate your own life? Was Jesus serious there? Sure, he was serious. Hate them? We can't be a disciple. Well, that's okay, because I don't want to be a disciple. I just want to be a Christian. Well, you know what? A disciple is a Christian. Uh, there was no word Christian in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The word Christian didn't come on the scene until Acts chapter 11. And it's only used three times in the entire New Testament. 
Acts 11, Acts 26, and 1 Peter 4, and that's it. Before the word Christian, the word to describe a follower of Christ, was a disciple. So Jesus says here, if you come to me and you don't hate your parents, your husband, your kids, your brothers and sisters, and even your own life, you can't be a Christian. That's what Jesus said. That's, that's incredible. I, I, we got to really stop and think about that. So does Jesus really want me to hate my parents? Should I call my mom up today and say, I hate you? Uh, no. But look at Genesis 22. Did it seem like Abraham hated Isaac? Kind of, right? I, I mean, his emotions and feelings weren't there, but in his act of obedience, yeah, it looked like he hated him because he was willing to obey God. He wanted to follow God, follow Christ instead of anybody else. And in this life, if we're willing to follow Christ above all others, there will be times that it feels like we hate these people, as Jesus said, even ourselves. Because we got to be willing to follow Christ above all else. And that's what Jesus taught. And then he adds in verse 27, whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You're not a Christian if you're not willing to follow Jesus. You don't have faith that works if you're not willing to follow Christ. Christ hadn't been crucified yet. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. But people knew what crucifixion was. They knew what it meant to bear your cross. They knew that it involved pain and suffering and hardship. And Jesus is saying here, if you're not willing to endure pain and suffering and hardship, then you're not someone who has faith that saves. You don't have authentic faith. Then he even tells us to really think about this. He gives a, an illustration here in verses 28 through 30 of Luke 14. He says, which of you, you're deciding to build a tower, you don't sit down first and count the cost, whether you have enough to complete it. So you're starting a building project. He's saying you're starting a project. Please sit down and think whether you're willing or you have enough to follow through with this. He says if you don't, in verse 29, when you've laid a foundation and you're not able to finish, you run out of money, all who see it will begin to mock, saying you began to build and you weren't able to finish. Uh, we have a building project near where I live uh, that's been a perpetual building project for over 25 years because I've lived there 25 years. And people buy that property, they lay the foundation, they start to build, and they run out of money and they stop. And the wood rots and someone else buys it. And they work on the foundation and they put up the wood and they somehow run out of money and the wood rots. And you know what all the neighbors say? What happened here? Why didn't they calculate whether or not they were going to have enough money to complete the project? We mock. We mock them because they ran out of money. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. He's saying, listen, sit down and consider this. Are you willing to put me, are you willing to follow me above every other relationship in your life, even your relationship with yourself? And are you willing are you willing, are you ready to incur pain and hardship if necessary to follow me? If not, maybe you're not really ready to pay the cost. 
maybe you're not really ready to embrace a faith that works. If we are people with working faith, we're not given over to peer pressure. We don't let the people in our lives drive our obedience, but instead we follow Christ. And you know, I've met women, women even in this church, who have left this church because their kids didn't like it here. They've left this church because their kids wanted to go somewhere else. That's exactly contrary to what this is teaching. We don't follow our kids. We follow Jesus. And worse off, women who leave the faith because their kids abandon the faith. Women who will tweak the gospel because their children no longer agree with it. We're to follow Christ, not our emotions, not our feelings, and not our children. And Abraham is a perfect example of that for us. His willingness to put the knife to his son, so to speak, shows that he really did believe God and he really did believe in the promises of God. And that's why James says in 2.24 there, back into our passage, 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The you see is in the plural. You all see, you get it now, right? Works prove the reality of faith. And you might think, but aren't there places in the Bible that say that we're saved by faith alone and not by works, that works have nothing to do with our salvation? Isn't that what Paul taught? What about Romans 3.28? Romans 3.28 says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Is that not contradictory? to what James is teaching here? Isn't that saying the exact opposite? No, it's not saying the opposite. The two truths are complementary. They fit together perfectly. Because Paul in Romans is discussing what theologians would call the root of our salvation. The root of our salvation is we hear the gospel and we respond to the gospel with repentance and faith and we're justified. But James here is discussing the fruit of our salvation. And when the root is right, the fruit is right. And that's how we know the root is right, is because the fruit is right. And if the fruit's not right, the root's not right. And that's how we can tell. And the two go together perfectly. In fact, we see them fitting together perfectly in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 begins, For by grace you've been saved through faith. So you're saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. How amazing is that? Uh, the grace is a gift of God. The faith that we have is a gift of God. Not a result of works, verse 9, so that no one may boast. God graces us with saving faith, and if we've been graced with saving faith, we are saved. So how do we know that we've been graced with saving faith? Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So how do we know if we've been given this free gift, this great gift of saving faith, of faith that works? The passage says we know by our works because God has predestined us to good works is what that text says. So you're predestined to good works if you have received the gift of God that is saving faith. All there in those three verses wrapped together beautifully. Saving faith will work. Now, James gave us this historical example of Abraham. And in case the reader or in case we're to protest saying, Abraham, that's absurd. I can't be like Abraham. He was the father of the faith. He was unique. This was a crazy, unique, historical life, uh, never repeated before, never to be repeated again. The father of the faith. James says, okay, I'll give you another example. And that's the example of Rahab. Let's look back at our text, James 2.25. James 2.25 says, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? James is saying, just like Abraham, Rahab's faith was authentic faith. Rahab's faith worked. And her faith, it caused her to fear God instead of fearing her circumstances. So for us, if we want to make sure that we have faith that works, we need to fear Christ and not our circumstances. If you want to make sure you have a faith that works, fear Christ and not your circumstances. Fear Christ rather than your circumstances. It's so uh, beautiful how James couples these two examples together. We have these two historical examples. We've got the famous father of the Jews, a very wealthy man, a righteous man, one who was called the friend of God. And we've got an obscure Gentile, a woman, a woman who was living in poverty, a woman who was a blatant sinner. And James shows us whether you're a patriarch or whether you're a prostitute, when you put your faith in Christ and turn from your sins, that faith will work. There's no excuses. There's no one that falls outside of that realm. Now, Rahab, she lived in Jericho. Uh, Jericho is known today to be one of the oldest cities in the world. In fact, it's the oldest city in the world with a defensive wall around it uh, today. So Rahab is a real place, and Rahab heard about God. Uh, she heard about Yahweh. She heard about him and his people and his power from travelers who came to her for her services. Uh, we can read her account in Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men, secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Verse three, then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you. 
who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. That's not true. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. That's not true. I do not know where the men went. That's not true either. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, in contrast to Abraham, we can see that Rahab's got some huge character issues, right? Uh, she's a prostitute, she's a traitor to her king, and she lies. She's lying here. How in the world can she be a model of living faith? How can she be a model of a faith that works? Well, let's read how she's a model in Joshua 2, verse 8 through 11. She says here, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She knew that Yahweh was God and she put her faith into action. She was afraid. She was frightened. But you know what? She feared God. She didn't fear man, and she didn't fear her circumstances. And because of that, she hid the Jewish spies. She assisted in their escape. She advised them on their next steps. She could have, she should have been killed for that, and she knew it. But she put her faith into action, and her faith took great courage, and it produced incredible results. And we see again the author of Hebrews mentioning Rahab. In Hebrews 11.31, it says, By faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab put her faith in action and it worked. And it took great courage. Now, there are two kinds of fear we see in the Bible. There's the right kind of fear and there's the wrong kind of fear. And Rahab, she had the right kind of fear. She feared the Lord. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord or the fear of Yahweh leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. But the wrong kind of fear 
The wrong kind of fear is fear of people and fear of circumstances. And Rahab turned from that. Uh, Jesus talked about that in Matthew 10, 28. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus talking about the right kind of fear there, the fear that Rahab had. Again, we might think that Old Testament, those crazy stories, Christ would never call us to do that. Well, let's look back at our Luke 14. We didn't finish the entire paragraph there. There were uh, a few verses that we left out. Let's look back at Luke 14, 31 through 33, and we're going to see the same thing. The same thing that uh, Rahab did, spoken of by Christ. Remember, he had given that example of counting the cost, making sure that we're willing to be all in here. And he adds in Luke 14, 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. That's Rahab. Rahab's got another king coming against her in war. And the other king, she says, Yahweh, he's got 20,000. And I only have 10,000. And she was sharp and she said, Yahweh is going to win. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do here too. He's saying, you got this battle that's going to take place. One king's got 20,000. The other king's got 10,000. Guess who's got the 20,000 in our lives? It's God. God is going to win. God is going to win. And it says in verse 32 of Luke 14, and if not, while the other is yet a great way off, just like Rahab did, they hadn't come yet. And she says, I need to deal with this now. He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And that's what Jesus is saying we need to do as well. When we see that God is God and we're not God and he's going to win and we're not going to win, we say, God, I need to do whatever it takes to be at peace with you, to be right with you. I am fearful of you. You are God. You're powerful. You're going to win and I'm not. I need to fear you more than anything else. And Jesus said, so therefore, because of this, any one of you, every single one of us, you and me, all of us, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Wow. All that he has, all that he has. Just as Rahab did. She could have been killed for it. She could have been destroyed for that. But she said, you know what? I'm going to put my trust in God. I'm going to fear the Lord. I'm not going to fear people, and I'm not going to fear my circumstances, and we've got to do the same thing. We can't sit here afraid of what we're going to lose in this life. We've got to fear the Lord. And that's why Jesus says we've got to be willing to renounce all that we have. We got to be willing to say, I will do whatever it takes to follow Christ because he is God and I am not. We were talking before about uh, when we looked at Luke 14, 25 through 30 about that temptation to peer pressure, right? Uh, you know, giving in to what other people want, uh, focusing especially on our kids. 
But now we're talking about fear pressure. Not peer pressure, but fear pressure. That pressure, that fear that pushes down on us. And Jesus says, you got to let that go. you got to be willing to renounce all that you have to be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. You renounce all that you have because you're found in Jesus. Rahab's willingness to risk her life shows that she really did believe in Yahweh the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. Well, our passage opened with James 2.20, where it says here, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then it closes with James 2.26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So we begin with faith apart from works is useless, and we end with faith apart from works is dead. Scholars call that a literary device known as inclusio. It's like putting the top and the bottom of a box on a package. The same statement, the same thought. And James, in that last package there, looks at that final illustration and says, the body without the spirit is dead. Without a spirit, the body dies. In the same way, without works, faith is dead. So we should be wondering, how do I know if my faith works? How do I know if my faith is real? Well, just ask yourself, how have you changed since you put your trust in Christ and you turn from your sins? How is your life different? And you know, I'd say go even a step more and say, how do others see my life as different? How do those closest to me see my life as different since I put my trust in Christ and turn from my sins? And then I would turn it around and look at it from the other side. I would say, instead of asking yourself, how would my life be different if I believed, Ask yourself, how would my life be different if I didn't believe? If I didn't believe in all of this, how would my life be different? And if you're saying to yourself, you know, I wouldn't change a thing. I would live my life exactly the same way, even if I didn't believe. I'd say that's cause for concern. Because Christianity, it's not a self-improvement program. Uh, it's not here with the goal of building a better marriage or the goal of holding on to your family or the goal of getting rid of destructive habits. But Christianity, instead, it's all-consuming. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if we have hoped in this life only, we're of all men most to be pitied. He's saying, I would have done it different if I hadn't, if I hadn't believed. I've made some radical choices and radical changes because I want to follow Christ and I want to fear Christ. We got to say no to our feelings when they contradict Christ. We need to fear the Lord above our circumstances. And we've got to be willing, as Jesus pointed out in Luke 14, to renounce all that we have. Jesus gave his life for us. 
He gave us his life, taking on our sin, giving us his righteousness, but he expects us to give him our life in return. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you for this incredible passage, uh, these two historical examples of Abraham and Rahab that instruct us and teach us and challenge us. God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that has never truly responded rightly to you, that doesn't have a faith that works, that you would help her right now, that you would give her the courage that she needs uh, to really uh, renounce all that she has to say, I will do whatever it takes to follow Jesus. I won't hold on to myself. I won't put others above Christ. Uh, I won't fear circumstances, but I will fear the Lord alone and I will follow him. I thank you, God, that it only takes a moment for that transaction to happen. It's just a choice. And I pray, God, again, if there's someone that you're working on her heart, that you would help her to make that choice now. And for those of us who are in you, Lord, who we know that we have saving faith, we have a faith that works, I pray that you would just help us to remember through this very busy month and this busy time of year, really what saving faith, a faith that works is all about. God, help us remember, to remember that we're here to follow Jesus and we're here to fear the Lord alone. God, help us to get our mind off all the things that distract us and just keep ourselves fixed and focused on the one who loves us and the one we love in return. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.